my fellow Americans and anyone listening overseas, welcome back to Visiting the President. I am your host, Joe Fakash, and today we are going to be taking the most elaborate journey to get to visit the birthplace of Andrew Jackson, our seventh president, and today one of our most controversial presidents, both for who he is as a person, as well as who he was as president, and lastly, for where he was actually born. Andrew Jackson is the only president who is claimed by two different states, and we will get into all of that in today's episode. So in terms of the facts, we know Andrew Jackson was born on March the 15th, 1767 in the region known as the Waxhaws on the border of North and South Carolina, and that is where the debate will come in. If you remember last week, we talked about John Quincy Adams, and the week before was James Monroe. And to my mind, those are the presidents. You had the last of the Virginia dynasty. You had the son of the second president. Those are the kinds of people that we expected and the founders anticipated becoming our presidents. When we get to number seven, Andrew Jackson, he is the first who is off the beaten trail, literally. He is born in a part of the country that was really not thought of as being able to contribute in much the same way. And so Andrew Jackson is going to be what really shakes up the system for good and for ill. And we'll be getting into that over the course of our time together. Andrew was born to his parents, Andrew Sr., who is going to die right before Andrew was born. And so he's named for his father, really as a tribute to his father. And then he has his mother, Elizabeth, and she is en route to the Waxhaws. And that is going to be where uh, we get into this debate about where he's actually born. Andrew Sr. had been a new immigrant from Ireland and arrived in 1765, just two years before Andrew was born. And he is going to be moving to the Waxhaws from Pennsylvania, where he had purchased a small piece of land along the border of North and South Carolina. And this area inland was going to be really attractive to the new Scots, Irish, and German immigrants. Normally, the British um, immigrants were sticking very close to the coastal communities. And so the inner part of the colonies was going to be attractive to these newcome immigrants, people like Andrew Sr. and Elizabeth. And so he was going to, Andrew Sr. was going to be spending his time clearing the land to prepare it for farming. And he's actually going to die lifting a log and it falls on him uh, and kills him two weeks before Andrew is born. He was the third child, the third boy in his family. Both of the other two Jackson boys were actually born in Ireland, and both will die during the American Revolution. Elizabeth, we'll talk about in just a little bit when we talk about Andrew's childhood, but she's also going to die while Andrew is a child, and um, we'll get into the exact details of how she died in a little bit. So before we go any further, let's talk a little bit about the birth site and where this debate kind of comes in, in terms of where he was actually born. First, you have to know about the Waxhaws. The Waxhaws was kind of a rough and tumble region. I always describe it to my students as kind of the wild, wild west before the wild, wild west, where kind of anything goes. 
When you look at a map of the land that was being claimed by Britain and France and Spain, there's this area known as the back country that was not claimed by any. And the people who lived there kind of shunned being claimed by either of those entities, the British or the French, and were kind of hard scrabbled. They, you know, whatever it took to survive was what was going to happen. And women were treated in a pretty equal manner because they had to kind of pull their own weight. And so it took a very specific kind of person to want to go there. This is going to be the region where we win the American Revolution. I always point out to students, we probably wouldn't have won if we didn't drag the or lure the British into the Waxhaws in the backcountry. And in fact, Cornwallis is going to you know, have to beat this retreat from the Waxhaws, which is going to be when he ends up in Yorktown, Virginia. But he calls it the hornet's nest of rebellion. And those of you who follow the National Basketball Association are familiar with the Charlotte Hornets. Well, that's where it got its name was from the hornet's nest. An Anglican missionary named Charles Woodmason described the region as, quote, five or six thousand ignorant, mean, worthless, beggarly Irish Presbyterians, the scum of the earth, the refuse of mankind, who delight in a low, lazy, sluttish, heathenish, hellish life. And that was a missionary who talked like that about these people, right? And some of you might hear that and say, well, that doesn't sound too bad. And um, again, it would take a certain kind, right? It would take a certain type of person to want to go there. Now, Andrew Sr., remember, had died two weeks before the birth. And so we know Elizabeth was on her way to see her sister, Mrs. Jane Crawford. And she is going to be living in Lancaster County, South Carolina, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. I've found that it's either Lancaster when it should be Lancaster, and it's Lancaster when it should be Lancaster. So either way, there is the dispute, however, about whether she made it to Ms. Crawford's house before she gave birth, where the North Carolina people will claim that she had stopped to see another sister, Mrs. Margaret McCamey, who was living in Mecklenburg on the North Carolina side. Now, part of what makes this really confusing is that the border between the communities and the colonies was in this very thick Waxhaws forest, and the line was pretty nebulous and unsurveyed, and the homes are going to be not too distant to our way of travel today, not too distant um, from one another. And so it's (laughs) unclear whether or not they... Uh, where she was uh, delivering the baby, and then how the border would have changed during this time. Now, Andrew is always going to say that he was born in South Carolina, but we also put an asterisk next to that because he, in his later presidential career, his political career, is going to be on the side of South Carolina when it comes to nullifying the tariff act of 1824 and like sticking up for South Carolina. He'll have as his vice president, John C. Calhoun from South Carolina. And so it might've been like a way to bolster them in a, you know, in a manner that didn't really matter much to him. He, by that point was living in Tennessee. And so, you know, how, why would he care about North Carolina versus South Carolina? And in fact, North Carolina doesn't really claim Andrew Jackson until about 15 years after he dies. So that also adds to it. 
Now, if you know anything about Andrew Jackson, you know about his very fiery temper. Anything you ever read about Andrew Jackson, he's always described as spirited or combative, quick to anger. I read that he had a very nervous tick of slobbering all over himself. And anytime anybody pointed it out or mocked him, he would then have to fight. And we will definitely be talking more about his constant fighting when we talk about his wedding to his wife, later wife, Rachel. And then throughout his life, he was always getting into duels. He was able to read. And so sometimes when he is referred to as this illiterate, uh, lazy hick from this backwards area, it was really people's way of putting down uh, the people that didn't look like the Adamses, the Jeffersons, the Madisons. Um, But we know that he read because he read the Declaration of Independence in public when it was published to people who were actually illiterate. And that was one of his first kind of gigs that he got a little bit of money for. He knows that he could come across to you as crazed and quick tempered. And he kind of uses that to his advantage. And again, we'll talk about that much later in life. But his friends always describe him as being generous and warm. It seems he knows when to turn it on and off. His hatefulness (laughs) when it came to his enemies, however, was eternal. He would nurse these grudges to his core. Robert Remini is going to write that he could hate with a biblical fury and resort to vindictive, petty acts to nurture his hatred and keep it bright and strong and ferocious. Which, you know, I feel you on that one, Andrew. Some will say he never lost his temper, but that he would try to preemptively get angry in order to psych his opponent out, which is bonkers when you think about how that would come across today. Martin Van Buren will say that he knows how to turn his temper on and off, but when he is in social functions, he is very poised and gracious and could be a real gentleman around women. And we'll see this later when it comes to the Peggy Eaton affair, for instance. But when he gets the opportunity, he's going to fall back into the language of his youth from the backcountry. Another thing that might surprise you about Andrew Jackson is he is much more religious than a lot of people thought. He's going to be baptized into the Presbyterian Church after leaving office so that he wouldn't be accused of being too opportunistic. But he is going to read the Bible often. He knows his scripture pretty well. And even if he doesn't always go to church every single Sunday, he considers himself to be a man of faith, a man of great faith. As a young boy, Andrew received a pretty standard education, owing in large part to his mother, Elizabeth, wanting Andrew Jr. to become a minister and to certainly do better than what you know had happened to her husband. And so Andrew is going to be studying under a man named Dr. William Humphreys and then the Reverend James White Stevenson. But he, not surprisingly, does not love his studies, and he's never very good at spelling or at his grammar. And so he decides kind of early on, shocker, that he does not want to become a minister. Part of what is going to spur this career choice is going to, of course, be the breakout of the Revolutionary War which if you're doing your quick math, he would have been nine years old when the Declaration of Independence was signed, and then would have been just over 10 when we start to see action in the Waxhaws. 
And this leads us to one of the most famous incidences about Andrew when he's a young boy and he's kind of being a messenger going uh, between enemy lines and he gets taken as prisoner alongside of his brother, Robert. Famously, a British officer is going to ask the young prisoner, Andrew, to clean his boots. And knowing Andrew, Andrew's going to be very defiant about it. And the officer, in order to teach him a lesson, is going to take a sword and slap him across the face. And scars from this incident will stay with Andrew the rest of his life and in some ways serve as a badge of honor. And if you're trying to psych your opponents out, you could do a lot worse than showing them sword marks across your face. Um, Without being able to dress his wounds, he was then marched to a prisoner of war camp in South Carolina, where they starved him and his brother on stale bread. His mother is going to help secure his release alongside of the um, his brother and accompany both boys on this long walk home. And when they get very close, she sends them both forward and they get caught in this huge kind of torrential downpour. And Andrew's going to almost die from it. And Robert, his brother, will actually die from it. And we are unclear whether he dies from an infection due to the wounds that he suffered or from dysentery that would have passed through the camp or pneumonia or something else entirely. Now, his mother, it might sound like she's being neglectful, but she is so caught up in the fervor of this revolution that she knows that she, as a woman, is going to be needed to help nurse the soldiers. And so she returns to the camp. While Andrew is convalescing from his wounds, mourning his brother now, he receives a bundle containing his mother's clothes and noticed that she had been buried in an unmarked grave. And the final thing that he could remember her ever saying was that she had told him, you need to be a good boy and you should never lie, steal, or quarrel unless your manhood is being questioned, which he took to the to, took to heart, right? And then also for whatever reason, don't ever rely on the court to handle slander. Um you know, again, that should be taken care of outside of the court. And again, he took that truly to heart. Andrew, of course, is going to be, you know, nurse this hatred for the rest of his life and will never forgive the British for killing his mother and brothers. And that will follow him through to the War of 1812 when he is going to be, be somewhat ferocious on the battlefield. But here he is, orphaned at the age of 14, and he has two different uncles who will alternate taking care of him. He does inherit a small fortune of about 350 British pounds from his grandfather's estate. And what do you think Andrew does? He goes to Charleston, South Carolina, and a friend describes him as the most roaring, rollicking, game-cocking, horse-racing, card-playing, mischievous fellow, the head of the rowdies hereabouts. Sounds like a great time, but not when you're trying to preserve a fortune and he loses all of his money. He becomes so embarrassed by this that he commits afterwards to really bettering himself. And this turns into becoming the turn that will eventually lead him down the path towards being a respectable citizen. So after squandering that money, he's going to go to school and try to really make it 
this time he becomes very concentrated on his studies, but what do you know, he's going to get bored after about a year and leaves the wax house for good. He's going to try making saddles, he tries teaching, but he's really kind of bad at both, so he turns to law, surprisingly. And there he's going to study in Salisbury, North Carolina, um, but again, he does the bare minimum and instead is going to spend a lot of his spare time drinking, gambling, chasing women. If you're sensing a theme, Andrew is going to deliver that. He does get admitted to the bar in 1787 and is immediately appointed as a prosecutor in 1788 in what was called the Western North Carolina Territory or what would later become Tennessee, the state. So he then moves to Tennessee falls in love with the land, falls in love with Rachel Donaldson, who we'll talk about in season two. In Tennessee, he and a man named John Overton are mainly going to be focused on helping new settlers find land in this big new territory. And then, of course, is going to be selling them land that was at that point occupied, in this case by Cherokee and Chickasaw. And of course, this is later going to only serve to make him um, involved in these disputes with natives. He gets elected as the Attorney General of Tennessee in 1791, right before it becomes a state and is actually going to be in on the Constitutional Convention before he gets elected to become the first representative from the new state to the U.S. House of Representatives. Spoiler alert, he is not going to stay in that position for too long. And when we come back in season two, we'll talk about this this next turn of events for Andrew, which of course is going to lead to his actions during the War of 1812. And then from there, he is a hero whether he wants it or not, whether he feels it is going to be a sobering experience or one that will become quite the burden for him in life. So now let's turn to the birthplace, right? And this is where there is going to be a lot of different commemorations. And I'm going to try to keep us, you know, knowing what you're getting into. If you do try to go and visit Andrew Jackson, I would say you want to give it a full day (laughs) to be able to visit what in my mind are three distinct sites and have three kind of compelling narratives. So one of the things to get out of the way right away is that Andrew Jackson's birthplace, of course, is debated between North and South Carolina. But there are also those who will say that he was born on his way from Ireland, that his mother gave birth to him on the boat before she got there. And some will say, including members of his extended relatives, that he was actually born in Pennsylvania, in Virginia. Now, if he was born on the way from Ireland, that would make him not an American citizen. And so when he is later running for president, the first of this non-dynastic politicians, that's going to be part of those rumors, right? Had he been born in Pennsylvania or Virginia, it really wouldn't have mattered one way or the other in terms of that. But you can understand that, you know, there's going to be a lot of dispute around him. Making it more difficult (laughs) to really pin down is going to be the fact that while the Crawford home is in South Carolina, definitively, the McCamey house is going to be about 300 yards from the road that at that point was serving as the border between the two colonies and now states. 
And the colony border itself is going to actually change over time. Now, most of you are likely thinking like this really doesn't matter all that much. And it doesn't. But when you're me and you have to go to all these sites, I promise, like it mattered to me. At, at, throughout Jackson's life, he's going to assume that he'd been born in South Carolina. And that's not disputed until after he died, as I said before. One of the best known biographers at that time, a man named James Parton, is going to have this multi-volume book on Jackson that he is going to claim that he's born in North Carolina and that there was a midwife who was present at the birth who is going to be the main source. And he has an aunt that kind of backs him up in that claim. When South Carolina gets wind of this, the state is going to have a commission and then even bring it to the floor of Congress to make sure that when it comes to the official records about any of their congressmen and certainly a president, they're going to want to make it clear. He, no, he's a South Carolinian, and they have a document that Andrew Jackson had himself written uh, that says that he was born in South Carolina. Now, in 1910, based in large part with the book in mind, there's going to be the Daughters of the American Revolution. And if it sounds like we're talking about them a lot, they're going to be very committed to commemorating a lot of these early presidents' birthplaces. So the chapter in Mecklenburg, North Carolina, they're going to build a monument in 1910 at what they believed had been the chimney of the McCamey House. Doubling down on the idea, if he if his mother had stopped there and she gave birth, then this is where it would have been. It's not where he, she intended to live her whole life or anything like that, but this is where she would have been. There was then a sign that was posted at the train station in Waxhaws, North Carolina, to let people know as you got off the train that the birthplace would have been nearby and kind of winking at this, uh, that it being in North Carolina. Then we get the Daughters of the American Revolution from the South Carolina side, from Catawba County, and they are going to come with their own six-foot-tall monument unveiled in 1929. The marker is going to read, I was born in South Carolina, as I have been told, at the plantation whereon James Crawford lived about one mile from the Carolina road of the Waxhaw Creek. Andrew Jackson to J.H. Weatherspoon on August 11th, 1824. So right before his first attempt at the presidency. Jackson said in his last will and testament that he was a native of South Carolina. This is also on the marker. This stone stands upon the plantation whereon James Crawford lived near the site of the dwelling house, according to the Mills map of 1820. So that is put up in 1829. A North Carolina highway marker that gets erected in 1938 is going to kind of split the difference and says that Jackson was, quote, born a few miles southwest of this spot, which would bring you to the border and doesn't really definitively say one way or the other. And it could pertain to either state. So that one's probably the least offensive of them. Then South Carolina as a state gets involved, and in 1953, they buy 350 acres around the marker site that they had put up with the uh, letter that uh, Andrew Jackson had written, and they call it Andrew Jackson State Park and have a sign put in place that says, birthplace of Andrew Jackson, the place where he himself said he was born one-fourth of a mile from here. So they get, a, to my mind, a little petty when it comes to that. Um, they want to make sure it's clear that 
No, he claimed he was from here. A historian and a request of the federal government were both rebuffed as the debate is going to go between people in both states for the next decade. Until in 1979, the local high schools get involved. Union County in North Carolina and Lancaster in South Carolina face off, and they decide that whoever wins that football game, they would get to claim Andrew Jackson as their native son. And Union County wins that game, and so North Carolina gets to claim it. Not that that goes too far. The U.S. Postal Service is going to issue a um, postage stamp that is going to have the birthplaces, and they decide, you know what, we're just going to say both states (laughs) are going to have a claim. But notably, South Carolinians will point out that the uh, zip code that's going to be attached to it is from the South Carolina zip code. In 1991, there's a prominent North Carolinian historian named Wiley Neal, who's going to be looking up our friend General Cornwallis to see where he had gone through the Waxhaws, and he finds a map from from 1820, which says that the Jackson home had been marked in South Carolina when that map was written. And so to his mind, that kind of puts it all to rest once and for all. So like I said, if you're going to try to find it yourself, I do recommend giving yourself a bit of time in order to make sure you're able to visit the three different sites. So one of them that I haven't mentioned yet is that there is a Museum of the Waxhaws located in North Carolina in this region that is going to have a lot of content related to Andrew Jackson's birth. Now, they're not going to definitively say, like, this is the birthplace on the North Carolina side, but are talking about the region that would have been over that border and really try to give some content about both. So that's something to kind of keep in mind if you do want to go and visit the Museum of the Waxhaws. Now, remember, I keep recommending that you do your own research in terms of checking the time and make sure that you're able to go in and um, and be able to visit. They are normally open on Saturdays. Um, and right now with COVID, that's going to be, um, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out when they're going to be open again. So you'll want to make sure that you can check the uh, opportunity that you're going to have to be able to kind of go inside. Now, the other sites are mainly going to be available regardless of what time you go. So when we try to go to the North Carolina sites. There is the Museum of the Waxhaws, which you can pass by. And then, of course, there is going to be the um, signage that's going to be on the highway that's uh, going to list that it's in a southwesterly direction. The sign reads, Andrew Jackson, seventh president of the United States, was born a few miles southwest of this spot on March 15th, 1767. So, you know, I mean, that's pretty general (laughs) and it's not wrong, right? Um, But that's going to be really the appeal of that. So then when you find your way, winding your way back to the spot, and we'll talk about my visit um, in just a minute, it's really the only thing on this kind of barren road. You go by this little church and there's going to be a kind of roundabout and there's going to be the marker that was put up by the Daughters of the Revolution. And it reads, here was born March 15th, 1767, Andrew Jackson, seventh president of the United States. And right below it is going to be a marker for the Daughters of the American Revolution. So that is the major 
um, kind of commemoration on the North Carolina side. There is a um, uh, sign skirt on one of the signs that says about the Waxhaws on the North Carolina side, um, birthplace of Andrew Jackson, seventh president of the United States. But um, that's it on the North Carolina side. On the South Carolina side, as I talked about, there is the Andrew Jackson State Park. And that, of course, is going to have um, hours that you're going to want to check into to make sure that you're able able to kind of go in and visit. And there they have a um, replica cabin of where Andrew Jackson had been born, as well as then, you know, different statuary and that kind of thing. And so that's definitely something that you would want to make sure that you're able to visit if you, if you make the journey to the spot. Now, um, in terms of their uh, having access, to the major buildings, they have a museum and that's going to be um, opened uh, on Saturdays and Sundays from one until five and then 11 a.m. until noon and 2, a, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. So again, it's very important that you check ahead of time before making the trip. Now, if you went and you weren't able to go in the building and just wanted to see the statue and the signage, you could definitely do that. And um, you'd want to make sure that you were there when the uh, park was open, which is going to be from 8 in the morning until 6 p.m., between November and March, and then 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. between April and the end of October. So you would be able to, even if the museum is closed, you'd be able to see the sign, a statue, and other commemorations of Andrew Jackson's birth in the park. So that is something to kind of keep. So in the park, like I said, you know, there's the replica cabin, there's going to be statue and the statues of Andrew Jackson on a horse. And then that marker that's going to have his actual writing about being born in South Carolina. And as I recall, there were other kind of commemorations around the area. Um, and so the, there's that to look at. There's also a highway marker outside of the park that's going to have at the very top, South Carolina, birthplace of Andrew Jackson, seventh president of the United States, uh, nor- near the site on South Carolina soil. Again, they're very <laughs> insistent on that. Andrew Jackson was born on March 15, 1767, at the plantation where on James Crawford lived and where Jackson himself said he was born. So again, they are very particular about you knowing that that is where they uh, believe he was born. At the base of the statue, they're going to have birthplace of Andrew Jackson, brave, truculent, <laughs> That's an understatement. Noble, able, honest. This marker erected by Catawba Chapter, Daughters of the American Revolution, Rock Hill, South Carolina, November 1928. So those are the major sites in both North and South Carolina. So in terms of what I encountered when I went to visit, this was over the weekend in October of 2017 when my younger sister was getting married in Wrightsville Beach in North Carolina. And I flew in to Charlotte from Phoenix and was able to rent a car and drive to Wrightville, Wrightsville. And then was on the day that I was leaving on Sunday, I had really most of the day. Uh, one of the benefits of living on the western side of the country is, you know, you 
don't have to leave right away in the day in order to preserve the travel time. So I decided uh, ahead of time that I was going to visit both the James Polk birthplace, and we'll talk about that in episode 11, and then the Andrew Jackson birthplaces. Now, I had read a blog from a writer named Zach Schoenfeld about visiting a lot of the different presidential birthplaces. And he had a really cool article about trying to pin down where it was and just going to visit a lot of the sites. And so I kind of knew what I was getting into in terms of the commemoration. And when I had done my Google map uh, kind of uh, research in terms, I knew where the marker was on the North Carolina side. And then I knew where the state park was. And of course, on the route that I took, then I was going to see a lot of different signage. The first one that I encountered, I would have been coming kind of from the um, from the ocean, so heading west, and I came across the Museum of the Waxhaws, which was going to kind of d- state that the president was born in that kind of vicinity, and then the sign that read, and this is on the North Carolina side, that he was born a few miles southwest. This is the one that kind of split the difference. And was put up in the 1940s. So from there, I kept driving. And in order to access the marker, even the one on the North Carolina side, you have to actually go into South Carolina. And so you change borders um, quite a few times, actually. So I stopped first in the South Carolina State Park, right? First, there was a sign that were you not able to go into the park, you would still be able to see the birthplace sign. And this is the one that's going to say that he himself was born and it's located near this site is what the the sign says. And so I took a picture of that and then I was able to go into the park and I found the sign where it um, has where he was, uh, his letter that he was born on the site and on the soil and all of that kind of verbiage. Now, Where it was located in the park was going to be very kind of wooded and shaded and um, rustic. I mean, there there isn't any other way to say it. You know, it's not this kind of pristine um, place, but really gives you a kind of sense of the region, right? Then there was a rock that has the birthplace of Andrew Jackson and the one that says that he was truculent and brave and noble. And so that is kind of right beside it. Further down this path, and it kind of goes in a semicircle, is going to be a statue of young Andrew where he's on horse and the horse is kind of bowing his head. And so Andrew is uh, kind of peering off the horse, looking to you as you're reading from this rock that's going to read about the joy of the Waxhaws. So kind of um, giving you a sense of what it was like to know Andrew as a young child. So then I got back in my car and uh, not very far, (laughs) there was a side road that you could go down and this was going to bring you across to... um, Cross the border doesn't ever say like you're changing from one state to the next. And there, like I said, there's going to be a kind of roundabout and there's a stone tablet out of the middle of nowhere. There's nothing really else around there that says here was born March 15th, 1767, Andrew Jackson, seventh president of the United States. 
If you are looking to go to the site, you'll want to find where Lancaster is in South Carolina and for either site, for either the North or South Carolina site. And then on Highway 521, that's when you'll come across the state park about nine miles north of Lancaster. And so you'll want to you know, make sure your, your eyes are kind of peeled for that. The museum is free, but to get into the park, it's about $2. And then if you went about a mile and a half, maybe two miles past that, you'll come across a small road and that is going to lead you in onto the, the road that's going to take you to the, the birth site in the North Carolina site. Now, again, that one is free. There's literally nothing else around. So you can go to that one day or night. I did revisit the Andrew Jackson birthplaces in the Wax Haws in the summer of 2021. This was on my way to Carolina Beach, and I wanted to see my good friend Jim Hyman. And so I had planned to go down a couple days earlier so that I could get to go to the James Polk birthplace in Pineville. And you'll hear that in episode 11 when I revisit or update that episode. But I then had time to kill. And so I went to the Andrew Jackson birthplaces in Lancaster, South Carolina, or in the Waxhaws, or however you want to look at it. So like I said, I started that day out where I was going to the James Polk birthplace, and I had a reservation for a tour. And as that was winding down, it was about 15-minute drive from Andrew Jackson to James Polk. So certainly something you could kind of plan around. And I went to the Andrew Jackson sites. I kind of did it in reverse of what I had done in 2017, where this time I was driving from Charlotte, basically. I just drove straight to the Andrew Jackson State Park on the South Carolina side. This was, again, one of the summers of COVID. So there wasn't a ton of people. And I don't know what was going on that weekend. It was super hot, but there really wasn't anybody in the park. And I actually thought once I had driven in that maybe it was closed. There just wasn't anybody. When I parked, there was another couple coming in. I just was going to walk the trail that has the different statues and commemoration of Andrew Jackson. That's really all I was there to do. It was exactly as I remembered it from October of 2017. So nothing had really changed all that much. But then when I left, I went to the Andrew Jackson birthplace across the South Carolina border into North Carolina. And there I did notice some discoloration in the memorial marker in North Carolina. I'll let you be the judge of it. I'll post it on the website. You can take a look and see what you think. It looked to me like maybe there had been graffiti that had been washed away. This is after the George Floyd protests and a year of real controversy and anger and resentment. I know Andrew Jackson, as I mentioned throughout the rest of this episode, has been really the sticking point for a lot of, you know, re-examining his legacy. And so, like I said, I'll let you be the judge of what you think might have happened. In terms of what it tells us about the president and the experience, <laughs> it's interesting, right? I mean, the the thing about these two states claiming him is that is certainly a vestige of this time period in the 1920s and 1930s when Andrew Jackson's views would have really been in vogue in this country. And today we're kind of having a reckoning with Andrew Jackson and the legacy of his policy, not just on how he treated uh, certainly slave owners, but then also how he treated natives and um, his own kind of views about 
uh, fighting and going to war, um, there really is a backlash against Andrew Jackson. And you see that if you ever go to New Orleans and then also here um, in some of the other places. When I visited the Hermitage, which we'll talk about in seasons two and three, they do a much better job about contextualizing this very complex individual. I would argue that the same is not being done at the birthplaces. And in some ways, what instead is being preserved and um, being offered to the public is a sense of where he came from. And I'm a big advocate, you know, not in excusing a president or some uh, notable official and excusing their abhorrent or aberrant behavior or views. But trying to understand them, I think, is a huge step in terms of trying to kind of fit them into our historical narrative. I don't think it excuses Andrew Jackson to talk about what it would have been like to be orphaned at 14 and have your life shaped by these conflicts and to see the Cherokee and Chickasaw as literally obstacles in his path and to see uh, African Americans and, and Black uh, enslaved people to be literally tools to gain this wealth that he saw all around him and that would have been really imprinted on us. How could you be an early American and not think that our country was built to kind of idealize and and glamorize people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson? And how did they get their wealth and how did they get their power? And if I'm Andrew Jackson and I want those things, you'll do the exact same things they did. And so again, I'm not trying to excuse him, but I do think it's important to kind of think in terms of, how he was shaped by this drive. Now, when it comes to kind of putting all of this in context and really digging in, that's, I think, when we can have this reckoning about the damage that he did. And you will find that in other places, certainly in the Hermitage and um, other Jackson sites. Um, But with the birthplaces, you know, they're really about how these individuals are shaped. And you do get the sense of how even now, <laughs> this is this disputed um, location. And Andrew Jackson was a very pivotal president. You know, when I talk to my students about what we expect out of a president today in 2021, it's usually somebody to be in on the national conversation. And a lot of that really stems from um, Andrew Jackson, a man who literally saw himself at the center of every debate and argument. We'll see that echoed by Theodore Roosevelt, of course, and then by a lot of our latter 20th century and early 21st century presidents. But there's a reason that we saw Andrew Jackson held up in the Donald Trump Oval Office as somebody that you could relate to as a man who spoke to the people. In the case of Andrew Jackson, it was going to be this well-earned Uh, sense of populism in his mind that he was going to literally be from nothing. (laughs) When we talk about rags to riches, this was a guy who had lost his father before he was born and lost his mother in a horrible conflict, lost his siblings and had literally nothing. And the fact that he was able to have any sort of future devoid of, um, you know, drinking himself to death or squandering his wealth, something that we would see the children of John and John Quincy Adams do. The fact that Andrew Jackson didn't go that route and instead was elected president tells you a lot about both his skills in speaking to the population at the time, and then also who we were as a country, that we were receptive to that kind of message. And so 
I do think in some ways the presidents are a reflection of not just who the individual was as a person and when they were born and died. And that's what I want to focus on this podcast, but also who we were as a country at that time. And so that is definitely something to kind of keep in mind as we continue forward. We're not going to be talking about a whole lot of great figures (laughs) over the course of this podcast, right? You're going to have those big standout figures like a Lincoln and an FDR and a Teddy and, you know, depending on your politics, you know, a Ronald Reagan or a Barack Obama. But we're also going to be talking about a lot of ordinary people, people who like Andrew Jackson was born into poverty. But unlike Andrew Jackson, they did not have that connection to the people, or they certainly didn't see themselves as being as um, kind of in on the decision making. And that is something we will be talking about as we go forward. And that's a perfect way to segue into what we're going to be talking about next week. And that is the birthplace of Martin Van Buren, our eighth president. And we'll talk about his birth in Kinderhook and the kind of president that we're going to start seeing with these men like Martin Van Buren who were born after we became a country and buy into that process. So you won't want to miss us talking about Martin Van Buren and his birthplace in Kinderhook, New York. Remember to be checking out the podcast website at visitingthepresidents.com where you can find photographs of my trips, other images, and links to other readings and visitor information. For this episode, my sources were Doug Weed's The Raising of a President, William D. Gregorio's Complete Book of U.S. Presidents, and Louis Picone's Where the Presidents Were Born. I have added a PayPal link on the episode page on visitingthepresidents.com, as well as the episode page. Any monies received will be used for future trips, as well as the hosting fees for the website and for the podcast. Remember, you can also help support Visiting the Presidents by liking and subscribing on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get this podcast, as well as being a fan of the social media sites. I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Visiting the Presidents. And remember to be checking out the website at visitingthepresidents.com and subscribing there as well. Now let's get in our cars and go to visit the presidents. See ya.